heart of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So before we talk about the call of God and our response to that call, which is a favorite topic for Presbyterians, by the way, before we talk about that, we have to talk about God's silence. We have to acknowledge that there are times and seasons in the lives of individuals and churches and nations where it seems as if God is showing up only rarely or not at all. Our scripture today takes place in such a time. We are told right off the bat that the word of God was rare in those days and that visions were not widespread. And yet, here is where we find the faithful, the priest Eli, the young boy Samuel, not just in the temple, which was actually not a building but a tent at this point, but near the Ark of the Covenant, that holy relic said to contain the stone tablets with Moses' recording of the Ten Commandments, the very spot at which the presence of God was thought to be located, the place from which God was thought to speak. The word of God was rare, but the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And not only does this detail have symbolic meaning, God's word has often been spoken of as a lamp, but it also means that this story likely took place in the dark during the night when the young boy Samuel was trying to sleep. And a close look at the lives of the faithful throughout the ages demonstrates the reality of darkness and absence and revelation that comes at inconvenient times to unlikely people. God doing the unexpected through the inexperienced. Fugitives like Moses and the young like Jeremiah and a farmer named Amos. Through Ruth as a refugee and Rahab a prostitute and young Mary and fishermen and tax collectors and sinners and all the rest of us. All of them faithfully walking with God through the ordinary dark times that is human life until they are wakened by a voice, until they are called to action. A 16th century Spanish mystic known as John of the Cross was born into poverty. He lost his young infant brother to starvation. He lost his father when he was three years old, and as an adult, he became a confessor and a spiritual director at a Carmelite monastery. In 1577, he was kidnapped and subjected to harsh imprisonment and torture by some of his own. Other Carmelite monks opposed to reform. He was kept in a six-by-eight ill-ventilated cell in Toledo, Spain, tortured until he managed to escape after nine months and hide out with some nuns. And while in the cell, he composed the poems that were to be the basis of his writings on the spiritual life, and each one evokes the experience of loss and of finding of abandonment and fulfillment. John of the Cross reminds us not to judge our closeness to God only by a sense of God's presence, but also, and maybe more strongly, through keeping faith while experiencing only God's 
absence. In his spiritual classic, Dark Night of the Soul, he said, if a man wishes to be sure of the road he treads on, he must close his eyes and walk in the dark. He went on, God has to work in the soul in secret and in darkness because if we fully knew what was happening and what mystery, transformation, God, and grace will eventually ask of us, we would either try to take charge or stop the whole process. The dark night of the soul, and as he described the symptoms that, that, that indicate such a spiritual condition, he, he talked about three main things. The first is loss, loss of interest in spiritual things and material things. Secondly, he talked about loss of fear of loss in, of faith in God, that you fear that you're losing your faith an indication of the dark night of the soul. And finally, he said, when you have trouble finding words to pray. And I read over his material again and, and refreshed myself on dark night of the soul and, and what it means for us. And I wonder if it's possible that we as a country are in the middle of a collective dark night of the soul. And further, I wonder if the biblical stories like the one from 1 Samuel today can teach us how to live faithfully even in the darkness. Because for John of the Cross, that, that was the whole thing, to keep walking in the darkness because God meets us there and enters in us with that mystery and transformation. The story in 1 Samuel, especially in the original Jewish context, is as comical as it is ironic. God's call, rare as it is in those days, is heard by the boy Samuel, and he quite logically thinks it's his spiritual parent, Eli, who's calling him. And after three times back and forth to no avail, the realization finally dawns to the priest that it is the Lord calling Samuel, and he tells his young charge to go back to bed and to respond next time by saying, speak for your servant is listening. And Samuel does, as he's told, he listens to God's call, and he responds by saying, here I am. And it's so tempting right now just to burst into that here I am hymn, especially since we have a singer named Samuel here with us. But I, I have a little bit of, uh, you know, there was a time when I moved from one call to another that the music director thought it was a good idea for me to sing a solo verse of here I am. And I was young and foolish and said yes, and I stepped up to the pocket and began to sing, and nothing came out of my mouth. It's the only time I've been in a pulpit where nothing came out of my mouth. So I, it's like a traumatic thing. So I, we're not singing it today, but you'll just have to imagine that's the song. Here I am, Lord. Here I am. That's what Samuel's singing. That's what he says over and over. And if you stop the story there, as we often do in, in, in church and, and in sermons, if you stop it there, it's such a lovely story. It's a funny story. It's an ironic story. It's a story of a person's individual call. But then we keep reading, and we get to that uncomfortable part, and it becomes a powerful story about the courage that's required just to listen and then to speak truth 
Because God's message to the young boy Samuel is good news for God's people, but it's not good news for the unseeing priest Eli, Samuel's mentor. God is holding Eli responsible for what Eli has left undone and unsaid. Eli's sons, even in the midst of their own privilege and their status, have desecrated sacred names and places, and Eli did nothing to stop them. Divine justice is coming, not because of evil acts committed by Eli, but because of Eli's aversion to act. His offspring have been using their status to satisfy their own desires, literally consuming the precious fat of the sacrifices and lying with the vulnerable women who had come to worship the Lord at the tent of meeting. You can read about it. These are horrible sins in Israel's moral universe. Change is on the way. And to his credit, Eli doesn't resist hearing the harsh words of God's judgment. He accepts God's will and that eventual peaceful transition of priestly power. And the passage ends with this note that Samuel grew up to be a trustworthy prophet of the Lord and that the Lord was with him. So here's the part I'm most interested in as a pastor. If we're indeed in the middle of a collective dark night of the soul in America, what are the spiritual practices that will sustain us while we walk in the dark? How will we demonstrate to God and to one another our trustworthiness and our integrity? How will we develop the courage both to listen and to speak truth in this moment? Our discipleship needs to go deeper. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was well attuned to the critical need for spiritual practices underlying a life of faithful action. So much so that he invited volunteers working alongside him to sign a commitment card, which included ten commandments, and together these make up a rule of life. Here they are. Meditate daily on the teachings and life of Jesus. Remember always that the nonviolent movement in Birmingham seeks justice and reconciliation, not victory. Walk and talk in the manner of love, for God is love. Pray daily to be used by God in order that all men might be free. Sacrifice personal wishes in order that all men might be free. Observe with both friend and foe the ordinary rules of courtesy. Seek to perform regular service for others and for the world. Refrain from the violence of fists tongue, or heart. Strive to be in good spiritual and bodily health and follow the directions of the movement and the captain on a demonstration. On a Sunday when we celebrate the life and legacy of Dr. King, there's no doubt we need to name racism once again and white supremacy both in our lives and in our country for what it is incipient evil, America's original sin, not the way of God in this world. Racism still deforms us, and King's prophetic witness is every bit as needed now as it was in his own day. And in contrast, 
Oh, what contrast to the ethics of love kings volunteers ascribe to white supremacists, sometimes falsely in the name of Jesus, have taken lives and desecrated sacred spaces in this country and around the world. We remember 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham in 1963, the Greensboro Massacre in 1979, the Wisconsin Sikh Temple shooting in 2012, Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in 2015, Pittsburgh Synagogue shooting in 2018, the storming of the United States Capitol, Epiphany 2020. How long, O oh Lord? American Chappist monk and social activist Thomas Merton at one point powerfully spoke of the self-knowledge we need if we're going to act in this world with Jesus-like love. And it's something I've been reading over and over lately. He said, the one who attempts to act and do things for others or for the world without deepening their own self-understanding, freedom, integrity, and capacity to love Christ will not have anything to give others. They will communicate to others nothing but the contagion of their own obsessions, their aggressiveness, their ego-centered ambitions, their delusions about ends and means, their doctrinaire prejudices and ideas. Gather to worship God and to remind ourselves what it means to follow Jesus even in the dark because there's so much we don't understand and we can't control and even now there are threats to intimidate and disrupt Inauguration Day. And so we pray mightily for peace. We deepen our discipleship in this moment. In the words of the prayer by Presbyterian chaplain of the U.S. House of Representatives on January 13th, God, our judge, nothing is hidden from your sight. Thus, we stand before you to give account for our role in today's momentous decisions, in our deepest desire to carry out our responsibilities to govern, protect, and preserve this nation. While yet unsettled by the events of this past week, we find ourselves seizing the scales of justice from the jaws of mobocracy. Almighty God, wield your sword and penetrate the confusion and discontent of our country. Lay bare our attitudes of vengeance that you would show us how to serve as instruments of your pure judgment and peace. Divide our rhetoric from the light of your truth. Judge our partisan thoughts and convict us to attend to the common good. We have taken our obligations freely, but we remain beholden to your guidance. 